Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, as we come to you now, uh, we pray that you would give us a sense of your presence that you would fill our hearts with your spirit. We, we know it as we read your word that you're never far from any one of us, but it can feel that way sometimes. And so I especially pray as we begin for those who have come here wondering if you hear them, wrestling with, with whether or not you care. For all of us, would you help us to see Jesus more clearly and to see him more beautifully as we read this text? And so we lift this time in our hearts to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of John together, and so you can open up your Bible with us to John chapter 11. Um, that's where we're going to jump in today. If you were here with us last week, we started a story of Jesus and his friend Lazarus, and Lazarus, his friend, had died. And on Easter Sunday, um, if you know this story, we know that Lazarus is going to be raised to life by Jesus, but we didn't get there last week. And instead, what we saw is that Jesus came and met Lazarus' sister Martha on the road, and and, and said to her, and she said, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, well, your brother will be raised again. And he made a proclamation about himself and said, I am the resurrection and the life. And asked Martha, do you believe this? And so that's where we pick up the story as we come into it today. And last week we saw this claim that Jesus made that he is the resurrection and the life. And, and we really have to wrestle with the same question that Martha had to wrestle with. Do we believe that that's the case, even though it feels far off and feels like something that is, um, that, that is too far for us to even be able to comprehend that it could come into life now. And today as we come into this passage, the, the question that comes in front of us and that I, we're going to wrestle with is, is God's transcendence in his imminence, is how theologians would put it. That God's transcendence is that he is over and above all creation, that there is nothing else that we can compare God to that could adequately capture his majesty and beauty. But if we leave transcendence alone, God can feel distant. And some people have described what their view of God as being like a cosmic watchmaker, like he, he put this universe together and, and then had all of the natural laws put together and created all of life and humanity and the universe so beyond our even ability to be able to see it and comprehend it, and then he wound it up and just kind of let it go and step back. And the question is, is that close to true? Is God distant? And we can so emphasize his transcendence sometimes, and in our theology, we can get so caught up in God's transcendence that, that it becomes difficult to know that if he can possibly come near. But that is his imminence. And we wonder, what is God like? There, 
there is a reality that he is the transcendent creator and there's no way for us to begin to comprehend. And so scripture consistently uses terms we can understand, but this is the beauty of what John has given us in his gospel. As it started out in verse one saying, saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You see, John's assertion from the beginning and in introducing us to the person, Jesus, is that the eternal word of God took on flesh and became a man, was born of the Virgin Mary and, and lived a human life. And so we have this, this union that Jesus is represented in scripture in this tension that he is fully God, in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, and fully man. And if we try to resolve those, you'll end up in some Christological heresy that we can look back at church history to see. But this is exactly what John's gospel is working to answer for us, is who is Jesus? Chapter one shows us that Jesus is God, the word made flesh. And now as we get to chapter 11, we see a side of Jesus that shows his humanity, and it shows us that God is near us. And so this is what we read in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. So Martha had just said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then it says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary in private. The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went, went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today we're, we're covering this section, but really what we're going to zero in on and spend our time on today is reflecting on and trying to understand what is one of the shortest verses in the whole Bible. It is the shortest verse in the English New Testament. When people get into the shortest verse of the Bible, people like start counting letters in the Greek and Hebrew text, and Hebrew doesn't use vowels, and it's very technical. It's a short verse. <laughs> but there's so much packed in here, into this short verse, Jesus wept. Uh, there's all kinds of, uh, it's hard to grasp what this means because it's hard to understand, like, does God have emotions like we have emotions? Because, like, our emotions sway us. They make us change perspective. They, they sometimes make us do things that we shouldn't do. And, and so our emotions have a powerful pull over us. And so in that way, th no, God doesn't have emotions that would change who he is, or what he, how he's going to respond. He has his purposes that are clear, but there's something that's described here of Jesus that shows us the reality of who God is. And so we're gonna focus in on what we learn about Jesus today as we look at this. And so there are five characteristics of Jesus that we see just in these two words, Jesus wept. 
First, we see the humanity of Jesus. So again, fully God, fully man, and his weeping was complex, just like it is for one of us. That's why we're going to look at five characteristics that we see in this, because when we weep, and the, and the language here isn't, isn't performative, because we, in this era, when it talks about the people that were mourning with Mary in the house, it's, it's, we have to understand the cultural context that some of those were friends and family, um, but some, it was, it was customary for families to hire professional mourners through the week to help take the emotional load off of the individuals who were mourning. And so it's hard to know here. Like, there, there were some people there that were paid to lead the family to mourning. But the language for Jesus weeping here is, is spontaneous. It's that there was something that hit his spirit that troubled him, it says. And we're going to see what that means, so we'll dig into that a little bit too. But his weeping was complex. There were layers to it and things that were going on within him that brought that sudden burst of tears. And it's something that we have all experienced, where something in a moment hits us and we can't hold it back. We were watching a... Um, someone's kid a few years ago, some friends of ours, and, and they just would not stop crying. And they were, I mean, they were little, like three, four years old, I think, at the time, and they just would not stop crying. And this little girl, and, and it finally, I think Alyssa, much more, for me, I'm just like, I need to either walk away or I, like, I can't deal. And Alyssa was much more compassionate and said, why, why are you crying? She said, because my eyes are wet. <laughs> like, there's some, like, for us, it doesn't, we don't know what's going to happen that's going to trigger that kind of emotion. And sometimes it's the feeling of emotion itself that we respond to with emotion. But, but there are moments in our lives where we don't know and there's this outburst of something that comes out of us and turns us to tears. Um, I, think that, I think that since becoming a dad years and years ago now, like, that happens to me way faster than it used to. And now it can be like a Super Bowl commercial and I'm sitting on the couch and my eyes are wet. And some of you are more familiar with this than others. Others of you might try to keep your emotions locked up tightly. You hold them deep inside, never showing them to anybody, and then one day you hope you'll just die. <laughs> but still, there are times when something comes out of you. You end up ugly crying. Jesus here shows us his humanity. Something struck him in, when he saw Mary. And notice his different interaction with the two women, too, that, that he meets them in their needs in different ways. With Martha, she runs out to meet him first, and she's, she's wrestling theologically, and so Jesus meets her at that level. And now as Mary comes out, she had been in the house mourning, and, he, and as she comes out, there's something that happened as Jesus looked at her and looked at the others around her that brought this reaction, this emotion from deep inside of him. And I think this is something that can be hard for us to remember, that we, when we think about Jesus, we, we again fall off onto one side or the other too easily, that there are times when we think about Jesus and we so think about his deity that we can't imagine that his humanity was legit. And there are other times where we so focus on his humanity that we might forget that he was God incarnate. But I think in the theological streams that, that I and our church find ourselves in, we're much more likely to look at the deity side of Jesus than the human side. And to emphasize that more, we, we forget that Jesus grew up. It's, it tells us that, that, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. That, that, that means that he grew up and he went through preteen and teenage years. He experienced the raging hormones that happen in those transitions. He had 
He had high days and he had low days. There, we read that he was hungry and he was thirsty, that he was tired at times. Like when he's, you know, they're out in a storm on the Sea of Galilee and everybody's panicking, thinking they're going to lose their lives, and Jesus is taking a nap on the back of the boat. He felt deeply. He understood betrayal. His friends betrayed him. He understood loss of family and friends. And so Jesus shows us with clarity that what God is incarnate, the eternal word made flesh, fully man, a human being. We read this in Hebrews chapter 2, as the author of Hebrews highlights it for us. That it says in verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so we need to remember this, that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing who God is. We are seeing the characteristics of what God is like, and it shows us that God is not distant, that God did not stay distant. He isn't some cosmic watchmaker, but instead God took on flesh and became a human being. He came close to us, and Jesus is now forever fully God and fully man, resurrected. And I think we forget that, too, that Jesus resurrected bodily, physically. This is what we celebrated last week on Easter Sunday. And by the way, if you're new to Redemption Hill, this is what this church will celebrate every Sunday until, as long as we exist or until Jesus comes back. Like, this is what we gather to do on Sundays. We gather on Sundays because Jesus was raised from death to life on a Sunday. And so every week we're gathering, celebrating the Lord's Supper, that his body was broken, his blood was spilled, but the death did not overcome him, but he was raised from death to life. And so that is going to be the message that we have every single week. But I think even in that, we can tend to have in our heads an idea that's really more of a spiritualized or metaphorical resurrection, even if we would know theologically that's not true. Because when we think that when Jesus ascended to heaven, it's like, okay, now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he must just be spirit, fully God, alone again. But every representation we have is that Jesus was resurrected bodily, that he will return personally, and that when we come into eternity, we will see Jesus resurrected fully God and fully man when we die or when he comes back. Jesus shows us his humanity when he wept. The second characteristic is Jesus wept, and it shows us the compassion of Jesus. It shows us his compassion. Jesus sees the people, and compassion is when we feel something along with someone. And so he's, there's something that happens in his heart as he wept, that he, he saw people's realities and entered into their mourning with them and had compassion on them. And that's what compassion is, is when we see people's realities and enter into their experience alongside them. But there are all kinds of things that keep us from compassion, Jesus didn't have these same things going on because these are things that, were, that show our own selfishness or brokenness. And think about this. What, what keeps you from entering into things with people? Sometimes you might, depending on if they're close enough or if it's the right moment. But when you have times when you can't enter in, like when I was talking about that four-year-old girl that was crying and I clearly had no compassion. Well, I think at times it could be our own self-focus or self-importance. 
You might think like, well, I'm not self-important because I'm not proud. I'm really kind of self-deprecating. That's still self-importance. It's a self-focus on what we, what's going on within us, what's happening in our lives. And the more focused we are on what's happening within our own lives, the less we're able to look outside and see others. I think for a lot of us, it's busyness. That you think about what you have going on in a week and you're stressed at work and you've got stress in your home life or stress with roommates or if you're a student, you've got tests and papers and things due and, and you might have other activities and things you want to get to and you, you've got all this stuff so your schedule is packed so tightly that if anything goes wrong at any point, it feels like the whole week could explode. And, and so in the midst of that, when we are that busy, then that means we are likely moving too fast to be able to see the people around us and to be able to enter into life with them. For some of, some of you, it's, it's, sometimes it's overwhelm, that we, we get drowned out and we, we're going through our own stuff. And so it's not even that you're self-focused, it's just you're completely overwhelmed. You, you don't know how to deal with the things in your own life or your own emotions. You get caught in a place where you feel like you're drowning and you need the compassion of others to help bring you up out of it. And so that can make it so that we don't have the ability to enter in, we don't have the margin to enter in with others. I think sometimes it's our expectations. We look at people and we think, you should be better than that. Again, like looking at a four-year-old girl and saying, come on, why are you even crying? We know that's inherently bad when you're talking about a child crying or a baby crying. <laughs> Don't worry, Kent, they cry. <laughs> It can't be judgmental over a baby crying in a sermon. We hear it, and only the parents are worried about it. We go, well, of course, babies cry. But as people get older, our expectations change, and it, makes it, it can make it so that we can't see people with eyes of compassion, but instead see them for what we think they ought to be, rather than entering into the reality they're experiencing. And I think at times it's our own anger that we're angry as we look around us and it makes it so that we can't enter in and come close to others. But you can't have compassion and stay distant. Paul Miller said, when I think of how Jesus loved people, the word cherish comes to mind. When we cherish someone, we combine looking and compassion. We notice and care for that person. We don't shut him or her out. So Jesus is the ultimate example of compassion for us. He shows us over and over and over again throughout his life and ministry as we read about it in the Gospels, the ways that he would stop everything and enter into somebody's life. I mean, think about when he was in the crowd of people that we read in Luke that, that there's a woman who had been bleeding for like 12 years and Luke describes her condition and she was fighting through the crowd just to try to get to Jesus so that she could touch the edge of his robe and she touched it and was healed and it says, and we don't know what happened in this moment, but Jesus felt the healing power go out of him. Which, again, I don't, none of us can comprehend what that is because none of us have ever had that happen where somebody touches the hem of our clothes and we feel the power leave us. I, at least I don't think so. And so as that happened, Jesus stopped everything and looked at her and saw her and said, your faith has made you well. 
We read a story about when Jesus was teaching a bunch of religious leaders and the most important people that he would possibly stand in front of and teach, and some friends had a paralyzed friend, and they brought their friend to Jesus and broke through the roof of the house while he was teaching and interrupted everything. And rather than Jesus like rebuking them and saying, why did you mess up this person's roof? And why are you interrupting me? I'll come to you afterward. Instead, he stopped everything to heal the man who was paralyzed, saying the faith of your friends has saved you. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus stop and meet people where they are. And here, as he sees Mary mourning the loss of her brother and sees the others who were with her as as they came to him, he entered into that place with them and came close to them, and his compassion motivated him to weep alongside Mary. God is not distant and removed. He knows your suffering. He knows the dark valleys that you walk through. He knows your heart, and he is compassionate toward you. But again, it's not in a way that, that, that makes it so that, he is, that his purposes get obscured. Wrestling through this this week, I think Tony Evans captured it in the way that was best and most concise for me. He said, Jesus wept, but what he didn't do was allow his feelings to interfere with the will of God. So the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he is fulfilling the purpose of God while crying with you. When you're crying and weeping and wailing and blaming him, he's crying with you and still fulfilling the purposes of God. I want you to hear this again because Tony Evans here is resolving 2,000 years of theological discussion. (laughs) This week, I have been wrestling. I was so excited to just preach this short verse, and this week, I realized that I felt like I was in way over my head theologically. And I was back reading Church Fathers. I mean, I was digging into Polycarp and Origen and uh, read, like, then going in through Calvin and Bobbing, like, trying to wrap my head around all this, and then Tony summed it up. I want you to hear it again. Jesus wept, but what he didn't do was allow his feelings to interfere with the will of God. And so the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he is fulfilling the purposes of God while crying with you. When you're crying and weeping and wailing and blaming him, he's crying with you and still fulfilling the purposes of God. This is the beauty of what we see that Jesus wept. And so it shows the humanity of Jesus, it shows the compassion of Jesus, and third, it shows the anger of Jesus. If you look in your Bibles, at least in the ESV, there's a little footnote here that um, when he saw, in verse 33, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That deeply moved, the little footnote here says, or was indignant. I don't know why they made the translational decision they did, but I think indignant is the far better translation here. And and this gets kind of glossed over, and I don't I think probably because it's it's difficult to say like why when they saw when Jesus saw them weeping, he was angry. Like we hear that and we go like what? 
How can he be angry at that moment? But, but here I think it's it, the anger and indignance, it captures it better. Every other place that this Greek word is used, it is used negatively for emotion toward anger and indignance. And so that's the consistent way that it is used. That is what the word most clearly means. And so there's something that happened inside of Jesus that he was angry at what he was experiencing and seeing, that his, he was troubled in his spirit. There was, there was something within him that was clear, this is not right. And so that's the tough question. What is it that he was indignant over? What was he angry about? What was, what was his spirit troubled over? And, and I'm convinced here that Jesus was angry here and rightly angry at the state of the world as he was experiencing it in this moment. He was angry seeing people who were made in his image and likeness being confronted by the ugly and dark reality of sin and death itself and in the midst of it, seeing the way that it shook those who bore his image and likeness into disbelief that God can intervene. And so think about, again, who Jesus is as presented in John. This is eternal God who took on flesh. That means when we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 and we read about creation and we read about God breathing the breath of life into the nostrils of the man he had formed out of dust. Jesus is the agent of creation. The Father spoke, the Son made, and the Spirit hovered over the waters cultivating and, and bringing life to be. When it talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day with the man and the woman, this is Jesus walking in the garden with those who bore his image and likeness. When they decided to rebel against him and listen to the serpent who, who undercut God's word and, sat and asked the question, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat any of the fruit here? You're not going to die. God knows that you'll be like him. Jesus was in the garden, walking in the cool of the day, calling out to Adam and Eve, where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? It was Jesus who met with Abraham, came and met with him and Sarah after they'd been promised that their offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky and be more than the sand on the seashore. And and Abraham and Sarah still didn't have a child together. And Abraham said, I'm, I'm too old for this. Sarah, la he laughed at God. It was Jesus who experienced the, the brokenness and fallenness and evil of humanity as, as he then brought judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Is Jesus who, who experienced the people of God walking away again and again and again after, after saving them on eagles' wings, bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them in, and God inviting the people into a covenant relationship with him, that, that those same people would be, would be adulterous in that. That's the language that is used throughout the prophets, that, that they were adulterous, leaving behind their covenant relationship and cheating on God with the idols of the, of the, of the places they live. It was one of the most striking things to me. I was a few years ago got to go through the Israel Museum and seeing cases and cases and cases of these household idols, these small carvings of bulls that were they were finding everywhere around Jerusalem. This was it was rampant among God's people. 
And so this Jesus then is the one with all of that background and all of that heartache and all of that anger who took on flesh in John 1 to dwell among us, the initiating the recreation of all things. Because we read in Romans 8 that creation itself is groaning and longing for its day of redemption, but it can't experience that until the, the sons and daughters of God are redeemed. It's the same Jesus who knows where this ends. And when we read in Revelation 21 and 22, and he says, and, and we see the new heavens and the new earth as this place is renewed and restored because all of it needs to be brought back Back to how God designed it to be, all, he says, behold, I'm making all things new, that there will be no more sickness or death or sorrow or mourning, there will be no more pain anymore, but that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's this Jesus now who is, who is taken on flesh, knowing where this is going, and this is the thing, again, with the physicality of the resurrection, that when it says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, this is saying Jesus will meet you in eternity and wipe away the tears from your eyes. And he knows that, and now he's watching because his friend Lazarus had died. His friend Lazarus had been in the tomb four days Sealed away, packed with spices and linen, he meets his two sisters who he loves on the road to try to get to this place. His disciples were freaking out. Jesus said, Jesus, you can't go back to Judea. They're trying to kill you. And he came back in from the wilderness to the east side of the Mount of Olives, close to Jerusalem, less than two miles away from it, and on the way meets these two sisters on the road, experiences their grief, experiences their expectation, because both of them said the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Of course he's angry. It's the only right response we can have when we see injustice and suffering and death. Here one commentator said the pain and being troubled seemed to come from the disciples' assumption Jesus couldn't raise Lazarus, the manifestation of unbelief in his deity. The real distress results from a failure to acknowledge him, to know him as God. And herein lies the continuous thread of divine suffering throughout the biblical narrative. Leslie Newbegin says here, perhaps one may dare only say, that, only say only this, that in the immediate presence of death and of the hopelessness of unbelief of his friends in the face of death, Jesus was facing that power which he had come to destroy a power which is met by the wrath of him who is the author of life, but which could only be cast out when the author of life took on the whole power of death upon himself. So what we're seeing here as Jesus was indignant and angry and troubled is that the one who saw Adam and Eve hide in the garden, who saw those he lovingly created rebel against him for all of human history, and in the face of death, they were trying to skirt death, saying, when the snake said, you'll not surely die, you'll be like God himself. And so they were trying to work around that, but instead came into the reality where death had to come. And so he's standing there and seeing the despair and utter lack of belief in the people who he was closest to, in the faces of those who bear his image and likeness. And in, in that moment, the author of life wept when stood in, standing in the face of death itself. And so when Jesus sees our suffering, when he sees us 
weeping and mourning without answers and in disbelief, not knowing how God could show up or if God can show up or if God is real or if God is distant. In the midst of this, Jesus empathizes, he has compassion, and he's angry about the reality of this world that leads us to the point where we would weep in disbelief. And we know this, that anger isn't the opposite of love, apathy is. We can't watch people we love be destroyed and not have some anger about it. And we fall into this same trap as the people here, that we, we, we might believe that God has done miracles for some, but we have no faith once something has gone too far, no belief that God himself can, can actually bring life from death or, speak li- or bring light to darkness. And sometimes we need the faith of others around us to carry us to Jesus and ask him to do what we're too weak to ask for. And so we see the anger of Jesus. We also see forth the grief of Jesus. He was grieved by the whole scene. Grief is a deep sorrow, and the people around Jesus were in grief, and he entered into their grief with them. God empathizes with us and comes near to us in grief, but the grief can't, again, can't be separated from his anger. That helps us to understand the way that God grieves. And this is tough, right? Because Jesus knew what was coming. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Nobody else did. But he knew what was coming. So why would he experience grief? Don Carson says here, it is unreasonable to think that Jesus' tears were shed for Lazarus since he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Rather, the same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompted his outrage, also generated his grief. Those who follow Jesus as his disciples today do well to learn the same tension, that grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance and irascibility. If nothing else today... You got some contextual learning for what the word irascibility means. (laughs) Do you understand what he's saying here? You do understand at a visceral level if you've watched somebody you love deal with something that's destroying them. If you've watched somebody you love that's, that has a disease that is destroying them, if you've watched someone you love who has died, if you have watched people be mean or hurtful to somebody that you love, you understand this combination of anger and grief that it can't be separated from each other. It's not enough to just feel something deeply, though. There's, there's an anger here that's appropriate because things are not how they ought to be, and anger shows us the things that we're passionate about. And so think about it, the world when we look around us, because we see what, what Dr. Carson was mentioning there. That there are times when, when we enter into grieving with somebody, but it's not, it's, it's just, it really comes down to sentimentality. Like we're trying to meet them in it, but we're not living in the midst of the tension with them, so we're not embodying the fullness of what they are. And there are times when we can cry out to God for someone as we pray with them in, with words that they are not willing to use. Let me break that down for just a second. I think at times we get scared to come to God honestly when things are bad. 
And then we read the Psalms and it makes us uncomfortable when like Psalm 109, David is like, hey, Lord, wipe this guy out and kill all of his children so that there are no, there's no memory or legacy of him on the earth. Wipe out their entire family line. And we go like, I don't think I'm gonna pray that. That's like a heart test. When you're really mad at somebody, like go read those Psalms and go like, are you that mad? <laughs> it might bring you back to more of a centered point. When David, though, in Psalm 13, is willing to be open about his own heart and say, say, how long, Lord? How long are you going to hide your face from me? How long are you, you going to forget me forever? Like, I'm ready to die here. And so there are times when we can enter into people's suffering, not just to, like, say, I'm sorry, I feel bad for you, but where we can help to put words to their grief and that grief will, always comes to a point where we have to realize the, the, the distinction between the way things ought to be and the way that they are in our reality. When we experience deep suffering and we, when we experience death itself, those are moments where there's something inside every one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, that says, this is not the way it ought to be. Something is wrong here, rightly. That's the right instinct. Because it's showing, and that's what Jesus experienced here. He enters into their grief because this is not the way he designed us to be. But on the other hand, if we enter into the outrage that Jesus had, his indignance here without the ability to grieve and enter into the, the emotions of it, then it just becomes empty outrage. I think this is the reality of what we see right now so often in our own society is that pick your issue, and people, there's initial grief when we see injustice, and then as it spills out to others, the more distant it gets, the less it's grief and the more it's just outrage. And so anger builds on anger builds on anger, but it's not entering into the emotion of the moment and saying, and grieving this is not the way things ought to be, but just stirring up greater anger. As Carson said, grief without outrage is sentiment. It accomplishes nothing. But outrage without grief is ultimately self-righteous. And so we see the grief of Jesus. And fifth, we see the comfort of Jesus. So we see his humanity, his compassion, his anger, his grief, and his comfort. Again, the words Jesus wept are complex. This is, this is multifaceted. And to the question we started with, is God distant? Does God see us? Does God hear us? Does God know what we're walking through? Jesus shows us that God doesn't stay distant, but he came and here, incarnate in the person Jesus Christ, met these sisters in their grief. I, and again, I love this, that, that Martha hears he's coming and goes out to meet him because she can't wait to see him. She, she's longing for his presence. She, she knows that he's the one who could have prevented this, but she still trusts him. And when he says, like, hey, your brother will rise again, like, again, beautiful ambiguity there. Jesus is saying, like, I'm about to do this thing today. Martha hears it and goes theological and says, I know that he'll be raised up, he'll be resurrected on the last day. She said, like we do when someone dies, say, okay, I know that I will see them again in the presence of God because they will be raised. And that's when Jesus again goes theological, but, but it's not just theological in head. He's hitting Martha's heart where it needs to be hit and saying, Martha, this is who I am. Your hope is right. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Do you believe that? And she's able to say, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so we have this this statement of belief that he is the one who had been promised. He is the one who is coming into the world and is going to make things all things new. And so Jesus met Martha in that. That wasn't what Mary needed in the moment. Mary was sitting in the house mourning, surrounded with people. Again, as was the custom at the time. And so you notice that Mary didn't get up on her own. I want you to catch this. It's earlier on in the beginning of the passage we read that when Martha had said, it had made her statement of belief in Jesus, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private. So she went home, left Jesus where he was and said, hold on a second, went back to the house, got Mary, and went and took her into another room and said, said Mary, the teacher's here. And, and he's calling for you. Mary, Mary Jesus is here. And he's calling your name. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. I want you to catch a few realities about Mary here. First, someone needed to go tell her about Jesus. She wasn't going to get up on her own. It took her sister. Second, she had to go out to meet him. Jesus didn't go to the house. She had to get up and go. And third, Jesus brought comfort that only he could provide. The reason this is so important for us to notice is because there are times in our lives when we need to be reminded of the truth of who God is. He is the resurrection and life to have reaffirmed for us the things that we might believe about Jesus. If you're not a Christian, this is the hope we have. And, and there's a reality that, our, that it brings hope to know that death is not the final answer. It isn't what God has designed us for, but has been conquered by Christ in his resurrection. And so we do have hope in eternity. That's what Martha needed in this moment. And there are times in our lives where that is the reminder that we need. There are also times in our lives where it's not a theological reminder that we need to be able to touch our hearts, but instead it's, uh, it's, it's knowing that God is with us in all, in all of his compassion and anger and grief and that we can turn to God for comfort. And when we hit dark nights of our own soul, there will be times where the way that light gets shed into the darkness is through theological reality that we need to be reminded of and there are other times where the light that gets shed into the darkness is an experience of the closeness and presence of God through Christ. It, as we walk alongside other people, this is something we need to remember. That there are times when somebody needs to be reminded of theological truth because that will help shed light into the darkness of their suffering. And there are times when what people need is the proximity and to be reminded that God sees them and knows them and has compassion and is grieving with them. And knowing which is which is, is, gonna, is, is so important for the moment because I, too often, like, if, we, if we're really theologically minded, that's the only tool we've got in the toolbox for when we meet people and try to come alongside people who are suffering. And there are times when that is the, like, the last thing somebody needs to know is like, well, God will use this suffering. Please don't ever walk into somebody's hospital room and say, God meant this for something. Theologically, we can say God will use everything intended for evil for good. That's true. But there might be times when you just need to sit and pray and remind people of God's nearness. 
And when we're in suffering, in, I, I want you to catch this, that, that there are times when we need someone else to come and pull us out of it and say, go to Jesus, he is calling your name. Back in Hebrews chapter two, it says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Have you ever caught what that verse is saying or heard that verse before in your life? If you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, he is not ashamed of you. He doesn't look at you condescendingly with shame. He sings your name in the midst of the assembly. Do you ever realize that? Jesus is singing your name. But there's times when we need somebody like Martha to come into our lives and say, hey, he's here and he's calling your name. He's calling you to come to him. And there's times when we will need to have them pull us by the hand to bring us out of our despair, to bring us out of the house of mourning where we can't see any light and, and, and trust that is if we take the risk to go to Jesus and meet him, that he is the one who can bring life from death and provide hope in the worst of the valleys. And so even as we've come in here today, I don't know, some of you might need to be Martha's today. There might be somebody in your life that you need to go and meet in their grief and sorrow and help them to know that Jesus is calling their name. Some of you might be Mary's today who, are, who just need somebody to help you with that. Reach out, you will not overcome your own suffering in isolation. And the same question that Jesus asked Martha continues to come to each one of us today. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? So we see in the words, two words, Jesus wept that God is not distant. We have all the evidence we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wept on the road with Mary and Martha. It shows us his humanity, his compassion, his anger, his grief, and his comfort. And what this means for us is that in our deepest sorrow, if you're with Christ, you're never alone. In your deepest sorrow, God is not shaken. He's not surprised. Nothing happens outside of his purposes. And you, we can trust the purposes and promises of God even when we can't see them yet. But even in the midst of that, God is not just tied to make sure that the plans go forward, but instead will meet you in the midst of your grief, in the darkness of the valley. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that whatever ideas you might have about Christianity, whatever you've come in here with, this is the Jesus of the Bible. And maybe today, if you're going through something, if you're in a valley, then let this passage and this word be what Martha was to Mary. 
something that can grab a hold of you so that you can know that in the midst of your suffering, you're not alone. Jesus is calling your name. And it might be time for you to leave the house of your own mourning and go to him. And he'll welcome you. He'll weep with you. And you'll never face death alone. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to, uh, for us to imagine sometimes that we're not alone. It's hard for us to, to comprehend. We can't comprehend everything that, that happened in the incarnation and in the life of Jesus and everything that was going on in his weeping in this passage. So we've tried to grasp what we can today, and I pray that, that you would use this passage and your word as we took a look more fully at who Jesus is, that you would use these things to, to meet us where we are, that, that, these would be, that this word and, and Jesus weeping would be something that sticks inside of us so that when we do come into valleys, we, we have this come back to mind that you are not distant. And I pray today for those who are really struggling and in deep grief that, that you would meet them, Lord. I pray that you would give us eyes to see people the way Jesus does. That you would give us the same kind of compassion and love and grief that we might be able to comfort people, to be appropriately angry, not in emptiness, but, but in a way that comes alongside and recognizes what ought not, what ought not to be. So, Father, would you give us comfort and hope and peace through your word today, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.